My name is Kim Weeks, and this is Practicing Well. My goal with this podcast is to help you be your best self in your mind, breath, body, and your brain. This takes practice though. And that's why I'm so excited for one of my first conversations to be with my friend Satbir Singh Khalsa of Harvard Medical School. We talk in this podcast about what the scientific research on yoga has to do with practicing well. We cover a lot of topics in this episode and could have gone on and on about what the science behind yoga is continuing to show. And one of the main things he points out, and that you know, if you don't listen any further, I'd love for you to hear is that virtually every yoga practice is capable of generating a relaxation effect. And further to that, as Sabir points out, yoga is a multifaceted modality of mind-body practices that helps all of us self-regulate, regulate our emotions, regulate our bodies, and regulate our breaths. And so we talk about the symposium on yoga research, which Sapir is many years in the making of offering every single year to bring as much new research so that people in the community, both yoga and science can come together and talk about where and how to share and grow this information. We talk about how we possibly can use this research to reach more and more populations of people, not just through the medical community, but in yoga studios and yoga classes. We also talk about leadership in yoga, the yoga industry and community, and how it is we can continue to use the scientific research on yoga as a way of increasing the racial and social justice as it is exercised and applied within the yoga community. But I'd love to know what you think about it. I'd love to hear what you think about how we, as a group of yoga practitioners and mindfulness practitioners can continue to apply scientific principles to how we describe yoga and how we offer yoga to make it more and more relevant for a wider group of people. So here's the episode with Satbir Singh Khalsa and me. Enjoy the episode. So Satbir, talk to me about the symposium on yoga research. You're the chair of the scientific committee for the symposium. And I'd love for the listeners to understand the history of the symposium, your role in it, and your vision for it. So the symposium really um, came out of the a precursor, which was really the Symposium on Yoga Therapy and Research, which was started by the International Association of Yoga Therapists. Um, I contacted John Kepner, who was then CEO, and uh, I participated. There were some scientific components to that meeting. There were a couple of scientists there, and I quickly got myself involved more deeply. And then in 2008, they had the meeting again. And this time I was um, uh, more involved uh, in helping coordinate the scientific components, um, uh, giving some side uh, parallel track sessions on the virtue and the value of yoga research, as well as uh, having some presenters present some of the research. And then um, once again, in 2009, uh, I got even more deeply involved. And here we actually had a parallel track session in the meeting that was devoted to yoga research. We had slide sessions, we had poster presentations. I mean, we had a little mini scientific conference within uh, the Symposium on Yoga Therapy and Research. And so it was growing. And, and so I proposed to have just a scientific meeting, just the Symposium on Yoga Research. And so um, the first Symposium on Yoga Research took place in 2010 at the Himalayan Institute. And it was very well received. We had almost 200 attendees and um, it was very successful. And so that is when that started and it has just continued annually. So it's been a standalone for 12 um, versions, 12 editions of it. And uh, the most recent one just ended yesterday. 
And, um, you know, of course, there was the pandemic, and the pandemic um, made us go virtual uh, for two years. And so we were a little concerned about, um, you know, coming back into person at this point in time, and whether that was feasible. And um, we did get the kind of numbers that that made it work. And uh, so we're very grateful that that, that happened. So what the Symposium on Yoga Research is, is really a, a full bore, bona fide um, scientific conference. Uh, it is uh, really targeted at scientists and, and uh, scientific trainees. And then the, the conference is really built around um, the poster sessions. And poster sessions are a staple of many scientific conferences. And this is where a scientist will put up on a poster board um, a whole description of a research study. And, you know, we had 40 posters this year. And other scientists will walk by, trainees will walk by and interact and discuss the research. And so we have two two-hour poster sessions within this um, sort of two-day long um, conference. It, so as a, as a whole, it really is a, a full-bore scientific conference. And, and the goal of the conference really as, as it is for all scientific disciplines, is to promote the field, is to promote uh, advancement in the field, uh, to train trainees, to share information. And most importantly in that um, promotion is the development of friendships and collaborations. The collaborations are um, things that you know develop out of people interacting. So two scientists may have a similar interest in a certain field. One scientist has this, the other scientist has that. Neither of them has the wherewithal to do the study, but they meet at the conference, they talk about their shared interests, they pool their resources, and they pull something out of nothing. And that's that's the effect of a collaborative effort that would not happen had the conference not provided the opportunity for them to interact with each other. So that's the beauty of um, the symposium on yoga research, uh, as it is for a, a research symposium in any field. And I always ask at the end of the symposium, when I'm close, making my closing comments, you know, I say, well, how many people have made new friendships? And, you know, virtually everybody raises their hand. And then when I say, okay, how many people have actually developed new collaborations? Um, you know, 10 to 20% of the people raise their hands. And that is really the goal. That's really uh, what the meeting is all about. And we can't capture that really as well uh, with a Zoom conference. Um, you know, the two virtual conferences um, had higher attendance. I mean, we were, we had two over 200 people at those meetings. But the problem is you lose all of those um, conversations and interactions because those take place in the hallways. They take place over the meals. They take place at a walk outside or at the back of the um, a presentation hall or in the poster sessions. And you can't really replicate that as well uh, in a Zoom uh, conference. So that's been the goal of the Symposium on Yoga Research. It's, it's the only meeting of its kind outside of India. And in fact, I would argue it is even more scientifically focused and coherent uh, as compared to the research conferences in India, which you know, there's a thousand people at those conferences, but there's only like 50 to 100 researchers and they get lost in the crowd of all the other attendees. And so, although it's meant to be a, a research conference, it, it doesn't give the opportunity to interact to the same degree. And it's not focused as much on the research as our conference is. Well, there are two things I want to put a pin in. I'm very interested in the international focus that you have on research, you know, all of the work that we've done together um, regularly brings that in. So I want to go back to that later in the conversation and also talk about what advantages, if any, the scientific research community has experienced from Zoom over the last two and a half years, because it might be nice to discuss those things. One of the things that we found in our conversations with the Yoga Alliance community was that there were so many teachers attempting to innovate, reach different populations, you know, learn more. And I, as I understood, there were some, so there were some studies that had taken place on Zoom yoga 
Do you, do you know about those? Can we talk about those actually just for a minute? And then I want to go back to the history of the symposium and how we can keep pulling that forward into the future. Well, virtual components of, of research studies, I mean, online things like, you know, online interventions and online data collection have been explored um, and was starting to be explored before the pandemic. But obviously, as soon as the pandemic hit, there were people in the midst of a study and said, oh, my God, what, you know, what are we going to do? We're, uh, you know, we can't meet and we can't bring people in. We can't teach the yoga in front of them. And so they were forced to, to go virtual. And so we've seen over the past couple of years, a lot of yoga researchers developing uh, virtual um, uh, interventions um, that were then monitored and, and data was collected virtually. And in fact, during, uh, we have in the Symposium on Yoga Research, a pre-conference workshop, which is devoted to methodology. And um, we typically have, you know, four sessions um, on different topics of methodology. And this year, we actually had two sessions back to back, which went into depth on the whole idea of virtual research and, and the importance of it and the pros and cons and and the methodological quirks that go along with that. So it's something that is um, that was developed substantially during the pandemic. And I think it's something that's gonna be with us uh, for the future. I think there's no question that in, in terms of data collection, especially if you're looking at questionnaires, all of these are gonna be captured in the future online uh, or through handheld devices. Um, you know, the whole idea of having, you know, a whole bunch of yoga practitioners sitting in a room with pencil and paper completing these questionnaires, I think is 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 going to be very short lived. <laughs> there's not much um, advantage to that. In fact, there's a lot of disadvantages to that. So so I think the whole virtual thing is going to continue. Um, and of course, the problem with the virtual is that, you know, if you're giving a virtual intervention, it's virtual. There's nobody there. There's no interaction between the teacher and the students. And that can be a negative. I mean, that can be a negative uh, to some degree with respect to adverse events, depending upon how intensive the intervention might be. But also there's the lack of person-to-person -person interaction, which may be important in conveying yoga because yoga is a behavioral practice. People have to be engaged. Um, and so you have to engage them in the practice. If they're just ho-hum going through the motion of a yoga class, are they going to really benefit? And that's one of the advantages of having an in-person yoga teacher because the teacher reads the participants, reads the students, reads the room, and then responds by tailoring um, the yoga class to address that. And that may be more important with specific populations, let's say for adolescents, you know, uh, one day they're going to be bouncing off the walls. The next day they're going to be down and low. And you need to be able to, to, uh, to teach yoga to where they're at in order to engage them to the degree necessary that you get, you get the benefits that you're proposing. Uh, so there's pros and cons, uh, but it's here with us to stay. And it, was there anything else that you learned in this pre-conference, um, these pre-conference meetings, aside from what you've described, that you know, listeners, especially yoga teachers might be able to act on or think about? Well, the methodology is really not just about the intervention. It's about um, the research itself. And it covers a lot of things like the choice of um, uh, experimental outcome measures, the choice of questionnaires, um, the human subjects ethics review um, the research design, whether it's a control design, what are the best control groups, um, uh, what statistics are the best statistics to use to analyze the data, uh, and so on and so on. So it's not really just focused on the intervention, although the intervention is discussed in some in some cases. That's interesting, and you know, I'm I, I I'd I'd love to maybe before we go back to sort of history of SIR, Symposium on Yoga Research, and talk a little bit about IAYT, the International Association of Yoga Therapists, you know, overarching drive to convene a group of people talking about things that were interesting enough to you that you wanted to be involved. And then you were so interested and saw the success in the event that you turned it into this other thing, because it does strike me that this thread, this, you know, 15 years of convening of scient 
scientists, scientific researchers, and yoga therapists is slowly but surely bringing yoga closer and closer to the place that policymakers and institutions and insurance companies, for example, uh, we can grab their attention with this stuff. But before we go there, I would love to also talk about what it is within a yoga research study that can be measured in person. Like you talked about the teacher being able to read the room and read the population and read, for example, the kids who are one day up and the next day uh, a little bit down. How is that able to be captured? How is that able to be studied in a, in a systematic formulaic way? Well, you know, on a day-to-day level, uh, from class to class, we actually try and keep, you know, the intervention as standardized and as much um, consistent with the manual that was developed for the course. I mean, most of the yoga research that's done is that is being done is being done um, in interventions which are very standardized. And so there's a, you know, you have 20 classes you're going to deliver. We know the content of each and every class, which asana, which breathing practice, which meditation practice, all of that's laid out. And the teacher has some flexibility in being able to offer alternative positions or to encourage uh, uh, participation or to read the room and, and adjust it. But but the, the teacher is really under obligation to try and really follow um, the treatment protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, that's, that's very important. And we don't measure the day to day unless we are interested in something that's happening on the day to day level. I mean, one thing that we do measure, uh, in a more rigorous study is we actually might even videotape the class to make sure that the teacher's teaching according to the manual. Uh, and, and we rank that and we rate that and we say that there was 90% you know, adherence to the manual. And that's important because that's, that's, that's the intervention. But the real outcome measures are typically longer term. Um, so, you know, you'll give an eight-week um, uh, intervention. You, you might do one or two yoga classes per week plus a daily home practice. And then, you know, you administer your outcome measures before and after. And so there's both subjective and objective measures. So there's a lot of subjective measures. These are things that are necessary to measure things like stress and mood and behavior and experience. Um, and, and that's very important. There's no other way to measure those or capture those. And then there are some objective measures that, that you can use. You could take a blood sample. You could take a saliva sample. You could look at stress hormones. Um, you can also measure heart rate and, and determine things like heart rate variability, which gives you some conclusions about how the body's responding. In more intensive studies, you you know you take a blood sample and you could do genomic expression to look at what genes have been expressed over the course of the intervention. Or in some studies, I mean, there's actually neuroimaging. You know, they'll get a brain scan before the yoga and a brain scan after the yoga. And typically, that's what most research is looking at. There are a few studies that will ask the question, you know, what happens after a single yoga class? So what's their mood like before the class, and what's their mood like after the class? And so you know, those kinds of short-term studies are also done. And you can do a scan, brain scan before and after a single yoga class. And and that's been actually done in in some studies. And if I'm remembering correctly, one of those studies was done on pregnant women who within five, 10 minutes uh, were able to express or be measured as having the relaxation response. Am I remembering correctly that Herbert Benson's relaxation response is is one of the things that has been noted and studied within the first five or 10 minutes of a yoga class. So the relaxation response that that Herbert Benson coined, um, and it's important to note that it's not really measuring relaxation. The relaxation response is actually measuring the meditation response. He couldn't call it the meditation response in the early 70s when he coined the phrase because nobody would pick it up. It was called the relaxation response as a counterpoint to the fight or flight response, the stress response, because it has the opposite effect. The fight or flight response is your response that responds your body and mind to challenges or threats. And that's 
you know, how chronic stress is developed in our modern society. We're constantly getting bombarded with threats and challenges in our life, and we develop chronic stress. Well, what meditation does is that it brings the central nervous system into a state that is the opposite of the fight or flight response. So you see a down regulation of things like adrenaline and noradrenaline um, and the stress hormone cortisol. Those go down, the body calms down, the mind calms down. And that is what the relaxation response is. So it's really the meditation response. And of course, you know, that occurs within minutes. I mean, as soon as you stop, close your eyes, focus your attention, start to breathe slowly, you start to quiet down. It's the quieting response, essentially. And that's what the relaxation response is. And the, the longer you do that, um, the more the system is rebalanced. And people with chronic stress um, will, over time, over weeks of practice, will then calm down and their chronic stress levels will go down. Their blood pressure, for example, if their blood pressure is high as a consequence of chronic stress, will go down. And the system will come into a balance as people learn this skill of being able to induce this relaxation response through yoga practices. Um, but, you know, on a short term, it, you can induce this within minutes. So I'm so glad that you described it that way and zoomed us out a little bit to talk about what this relaxation, AKA meditation response is because even as many times as I've heard you described it, describe it, um, I didn't know that he had to call it relaxation response and not meditation response. So notating that in this moment, is it fair to say that when yoga that all yoga classes or many yoga classes or most yoga classes that begin with the seated posture, cross-legged or kneeling or whatever? And there's say a five minute, a seven minute, you know, experience where the group, the teacher and the student, if it's a private or whatever, are being quiet. And are they always down-regulating their nervous system? Are they always down-regulating the adrenaline, noradrenaline and creating this meditation response? Well, you know, it's it's a little bit more complicated. Um, I mean, virtually every aspect of yoga practice is capable of generating this relaxation effect. And so, you know, whether you start with asana or whether you start with shavasana or whether you start with some slow breathing, you are able, you are able to get down uh, deeper into that state. Now, of course, there's a lot of vigor in a lot of yoga classes. There's hot yoga, there's power yoga. I mean, uh, my style of yoga, Kundalini yoga, is viewed as a vigorous style, and we're doing breath of fire and a lot of these, uh, you know, tough exercises. But you know, ultimately, the goal there is also to ultimately generate the ability to self-regulate, because when you when you exert yourself in in yoga practice, after you're finished exerting yourself, you then go into a deeper relaxation state than you were before you started. This is a sort of a tension release phenomenon. So if you really tense your fists really, really, really tight and hold them that way and then release them, they're gonna be more relaxed than before you did that tension exercise. If you jog around the block, jogging around the block is a very intensive activity. When you stop and relax, you are more relaxed than before you started jogging. So this is the tension release phenomenon that takes place in yoga as well. And the other thing you're doing with that is you're changing, you're expanding the dynamic range of your ability to self-regulate your internal state. You're going from very intense activity to extremely deep and profound meditative activity. And that increases your ability to self-regulate your, your state. And self-regulation is very important because we're constantly bombarded uh, by our environment, by our lives, by society, by the world, by our challenges. And we need to respond to those. And sometimes we need a vigorous response and sometimes we need just a chill response. And so um, that's what yoga is all about. It's about increasing our ability to self-regulate our internal state, both mental and physical, and adapt as we need to uh, and perform well as we need to despite the challenges that we might be facing. I heard you say 
there were are many different techniques within the yoga practice. You could say across different lineages, even we talked about power yoga, hot yoga, um, other types of yoga, you know, for example, in, (laughs) during COVID yin yoga has become very, and restorative yoga, both have become very popular because people have taken, um, I think quite correctly, a very stressed out mind body complex straight to the ground, straight to, you know, quieting, you know, very restful yoga nidra, you know, these types of practices have been very explicitly about, you know, supine um, practices that allow you to just relax. And so, and then on the other hand, you've got breath of fire and you've got these Kundalini practices, for example, and, or other very vigorous yoga practices, is it fair to say in all of that? I've, what I've just described, applying a slowed, steadied or, and, or more conscious breath to mindful posture, whether it's a dynamic posture, so it's moving in time and space, or it's a posture in which just the breath and mind get to do their own jumping jacks meaning in the form of meditation, all of that is at the end, the yoga practice that increases our ability to self-regulate. Well, you know, there's a whole dynamic range of what, as you said, what you can do with yoga. And so the whole, you know, restorative yoga, quieting yoga, yoga nidra practices in which, you know, there's no strong exertion, um, that's needed. I mean, when people are under high levels of chronic stress, they need to be able to learn how to relax. That's very important. Uh, And that has a lot to offer and it has a number of populations well-suited for. It's also extremely well-suited to virtual presentation because it's hard to hurt yourself if you're lying on your back. Uh, You're not gonna have any adverse events. So, So it has its place. Um, And it's very important for people to learn to be able to relax at will. And, and create that relaxation response as necessary. Now, the deeper practices of yoga, the more intense practices of yoga have their place as well. I mean, you need to be able to have uh, muscle strength. You need to have muscle coordination. You need to be able to move quickly and have strength in your body. And that's what you know, the more intensive physical types of practices, the intensive breathing practices and the intensive asanas will provide. And that gives you another another level of health. You need to have some degree of aerobic fitness. And these more vigorous practices can can lead to that, whether it's a a very vigorous repetitive sun salutation um, or whether it's a kapalabhati or, or breath of fire. These give you more health in that sense, uh, because they are, you know, maintaining those aerobic levels of health and then also the respiratory health as well. Let's go back to the research. Let's go back to the history of the International Association of Yoga Therapists. You know, Kepner's, you know, originating idea, he, you know, quite, he's quite a visionary. He started a really important organization with, that is advancing um, the profession of yoga therapy and the profession of yoga teachers, both. And now here you have this symposium on yoga research, which are, you know, frankly, are three words that a lot of people wouldn't put together. A lot of people who know about yoga would not think about any kind of symposium or any kind of research related to that practice. So let's start back from that beginning and thread that through the vision of this professionalism in yoga therapy, the yoga therapists and yoga teachers. So the International Association of Yoga Therapists set a goal for itself, and this is from the board and from this, you know, the former CEO, John Kepner, when he started it, um, to set up the goal of getting yoga therapy accepted as a credible um, form of therapy within modern medicine. And it was focused as a therapy. So treatment of patient populations, essentially medical conditions. 
kudos to them for recognizing the importance of research right off the bat because they called their first symposium, Symposium on Yoga Therapy and Research. They did have a research component that they put in there themselves. I took it the next step, which was, if we're going to have research, let's really have a research conference. Let's let's really go whole hog on this thing and make a very credible research conference that's going to build the field. And that is really important in virtually any field, any in any therapy. You need to have research. Without the research, you're not going to be able to penetrate the medical system with your therapy because you need to have evidence of efficacy and you need to have evidence of safety. And if you can't provide that evidence, then it's all anecdotal. And policymakers can't work from anecdotes. The policymakers are responsive to certain populations, whether that's the general public, and they can only make decisions that they can justify. So how do they justify bringing yoga into a hospital clinic and having it as a mainstay as as a treatment? Uh, And the answer is, you know, the research has to be there to demonstrate that it belongs there, that it's not going to take up resources that can be used in some other way to help patients. You have to demonstrate that it's worthwhile putting it in there. Um, And that's that's what the research on yoga is all about. And, and, you know, it's been my mission to basically not only conduct research myself, but also to serve as a promoter uh, of research on yoga internationally. So I've attended all of the yoga research conferences in India um, and, and, and developed collaborations with all of the researchers internationally. And, and the Symposium on Yoga Research has facilitated that further. And so You know, what happens is that, you know, hopefully this will, through the promotion and support of yoga research, will will strengthen the yoga research, make stronger studies, make more studies, bring more people to the field. That makes more publications. Um, And then there's policy statements that come from that. Already we've seen policy statements starting to reflect the research on yoga in two areas. One is in low back pain and one is in cancer patients. And there are now consensus statements within the field of the research on low back pain and on cancer patients that suggest that yoga is a credible therapy that can contribute. It's it's another therapy that can be used that has credibility. And that's based upon the research that was done. Those consensus and policy statements are read and followed by medical doctors. Those are the things that will be taught in medical school. So now when the patient comes into the into the clinic for back pain, the doctor will say, you know, I can give you this pill, I can give you physical therapy, but you know, there's evidence also that yoga has a place here as well. So these are options now. And that's bringing yoga into the system. And whether it's into the medical system or into the schools, uh, again, you need the research. The policymaker is not going to bring, you know, the schools are already complaining that, you know, we don't have enough hours in the day to teach uh, STEM and all of the other things to compete with the Chinese. So now you're talking about bringing in yoga, displacing something else to bring yoga in. You need to justify that. And the justification is that there's a huge mental health problem in our children and adolescents, and yoga can address that. And so it belongs in there to be able to reduce levels of depression and anxiety and stress. And, and that is what the research is going to ultimately uh, serve as, is, is um, the justification for policymakers. I have a couple of questions there because I think, I think packed in there is a lot of really important possible directives for people who are teaching yoga, who know people who teach yoga, and just as important, who have any reach or influence or impact on medical facilities anywhere. Anecdotally, this is anecdotally now, okay, so I don't want to build the whole case I'm about to make on just these few stories that I hear, but I have been teaching yoga for 20 years. I have been um, trying to be in as many places as possible with a high quality, you know, rigorous, reflective conversation on yoga that has impact. And what I hear is that physical therapists more and more and or medical doctors are being confronted with people coming in who have injuries that they've sustained from yoga people. So, so 
I want to like pause there and say, let's say those are scenarios that are occurring as often as are occurring in these medical um, environments where the doctor has just read the consensus statement on yoga as having efficacy for low back pain. So do we have as a yoga industry or community, a systematic and known way that yoga teachers of whatever kind can educate that doctor on the kinds kinds of yoga or poses or breaths, or again, you know, we've talked about yoga having many different techniques. So do we have a way to educate these doctors on exactly what might be good, what teacher might be good, what stable of yoga teachers that are in that, excuse me, teachers, that uh, doctor's database? Do we have that? Do we have a way to put the consensus statement like really into practice? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Mm -hmm. Um, And the yes part is, is what the International Association of Yoga Therapists has been doing. They've been accrediting yoga therapy schools and um, credentialing yoga therapists. And the purpose of that is that these are yoga teachers that then go on to supplemental training to specifically understand how to apply yoga to patient populations. Because yoga for the general public cannot be the same as yoga to patient populations. Patient populations have very specific vulnerabilities and very specific limitations, and those need to be addressed. Otherwise, there's going to be an adverse event. You can't just send a 90-year-old with low back pain to a hot yoga class. It's not going to work. There's going to be a problem. So one solution to that is this credentialing so that uh, a doctor who's referring a patient with low back pain can say, look, uh, I'm in touch with a yoga therapist whose specialty is working with musculoskeletal conditions. I'm going to send you to this particular individual. And there's some confidence that that doctor has that this this yoga therapist, so-called, will be able to do something for the patient that is very safe and at the same time get some efficacy. Now, there's a lot of circumstances where, you know, yoga therapists are not known to doctors and a doctor will just say, uh, will want to say, okay, go do some yoga. Well, that in itself is problematic because there are so many, many different styles of yoga with different foci and, and different effects. And so you can't just send a patient out to the general world saying, I'm going to do some yoga. Well, what does that mean? Well, they're going to walk down the street. First, the yoga studio they come to, they take a yoga class. The, the fit is going to be a crapshoot. And it could be amazing if they're lucky. They could be amazing and it could be a great teacher and a great thing. Most often or not, most often I would suspect it's not going to be a fit. And that person will go into the class, it's too vigorous or it's too soft or whatever. It's not a fit. The teacher was personality-wise, it was not a fit for that individual. And, and the patient will say, yeah, I tried yoga once. <laughs> and what does that mean? Well, yeah, you did one yoga class at one studio with one style of yoga with one specific teacher. That's what you did. That's not doing yoga. Doing yoga means that you have to find the practice that is a total fit for you. That means you have to shop. And so a doctor can't just simply refer someone to yoga. They have to instruct the patient, look, you need to find a yoga class and a yoga teacher that is a fit for you and then apply that. And then if it's a fit, not only will it be safe, it will be effective and you will engage in it because it's a fit for you. And so you have to shop. You have to go in You have to go on the internet and find out what the different yoga styles are and which style is a fit for you. Then you have to go to the studios and you have to try a few classes, not just one class because different yoga sessions have different effects. And you have to try it with a different teacher and you have to try it with a different style of yoga. So you do that, you end up doing, you know, 15, 20 yoga classes and a couple of studios with a couple of teachers. Now you're informed. And you have probably experienced one teacher and one style that really hit the spot. 
And not only was it effective, but it was safe, you were comfortable, and that's the style you can engage in. And you'll end up saying, Wednesday night's my yoga class. I'm not scheduling anything on Wednesday nights because that's the class I'm going to because I benefit from it and I love it. You know, I I love everything you're saying. And I'm thinking about a conversation you and I had a couple of years ago in which you talked about yoga as practice today is a form of racial and social injustice because the scenario you've just described assumes that the person has the money and the time and the ability to transport themselves from X to Y to Z locations and, 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 and can really take all of that sort of effort to get themselves informed. And I'm wondering if there is a digital way or some other way that like, if the doctor said is like seeing the patient and it's kind of an, if yoga then scenario. So the doctor says, well, Hey, I know about this. Um, here's a website to go to answer some questions about what motivates you in a body movement class or what you think yoga is. Let's say it's a 10 question questionnaire thing. And then at the end of that questionnaire, you know, the person would have like a list of a couple of places that might match them a bit better. I just wonder if there's a way we can like direct dial this matchmaking for people who just don't have the resources to shop around in a market where it seems to me we haven't done a good enough job to explain to the general public what they're getting when they go to a yoga class. You get this, you get that, you get X, you get Y. When I think about it from the consumer's point of view, which before I even say anything else, assumes that they've got the $20 to go to a yoga class, which most people don't. How do we get to people who don't have that ability? This is a major issue within, you know, yoga as a therapeutic intervention. And it's really on the issue of what we call translation. So the research will say, you know, this particular style of yoga for this amount of time um, generated this particular level of benefit in symptoms and this disorder, or, you know, it, it had this much improvement in, in symptoms. And then the question is, okay, how do you bring that into the clinic? How do you bring that into the real world? Because that's, that's the data. That's the information that tells, the, tells you that there is potential efficacy. So now how do you make it real? How does it, how does it manifest in the real world? And perhaps there should be some kind of global website that is a yoga practice matcher <laughs> uh, in which you go to that website and pay a small fee and then you do a bunch of questions and it 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 pops out you know this is for you this this given what you have said on your questionnaire about your limitations your vulnerabilities your interests your cultural background your you know your belief systems this is the style of yoga that will most likely fit you. And these are six different styles of yoga at seven different studios that, that are more likely to be a fit for you based upon what you've done. Uh, and until that, that kind of a targeting uh, exists, people are going to have to shop on their own. And what you mm -hmm. said is absolutely true. Um, not only will, um, you know, the lower socioeconomic status individuals and minorities not have access to it, um, the doctors that they typically see probably won't be prescribing yoga. So in general, what we see is that that yoga is mostly practiced by, by women, mostly by rich middle-aged women um, who are highly educated. And that's what dominates the field. And yoga now has, has a reputation as being something that is practiced by that population. Uh, and and it comes with a lot of other things that 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 people assume based upon the public perception of yoga. So, for example, you have to be flexible in order to practice yoga. Well, that's not true. <laughs> the purpose of practicing yoga is to get more flexible. <laughs> and and if it was yoga, if it was just for the flexible people, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, 
And and the other aspect that that many people hear is, well, you know, it's just a form of exercise. No, it's got breathing, it's got meditation, it can have huge impacts on mental health and performance. And then, you know, there's another aspect which which some people are concerned about. I mean, they know that yoga is from India. They know that people that practice yoga tend to chant these mantras and there's some mystery to it. Yoga is a religion. That's what they that's what the interpretation is. And so, no, I, I, you know, I'm 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 a member of this particular faith and I'm not allowed to practice yoga because that's a different religion. So there's a lot of misconceptions in the general population about what yoga is. Uh, and, and that confounds things as well for someone who is a patient who might want to practice yoga. Um, and then it's also not in the cultural wheelhouse uh, of many minorities. I mean, Hispanics and African-Americans are not automatically, you know, eyes out, eyes wide open. Wow, yoga, that sounds like fun. No, that's not within their um, within their hi- historical background. And, and so um, they have to be educated about what yoga is and and what it isn't and and that's important too so this whole translation piece has a lot of components to it and um you know that has to be in place if if we're really going to have widespread use of yoga uh, for specific populations well and you know i i like that you call it translation because of course we are talking about a practice that is a sanskrit word and does come from south asia and for you know thousands of years was practiced taught and practiced by you know people on the subcontinent of of india and not here so we it seems to me are grappling with the integration of this you know art philosophy and science into the modern consciousness modern you know, as we discussed in a, in a recent series I did on the householders, you know, people who are just working day in and day out, day out and trying to figure out any way, a way, any way to incorporate any kinds of practices into their daily lives. And so it, it does really strike me that, you know, in business, we talk about like B2B, you know, business to business, um, communications or business to business sales or whatever. And it seems to me that the, the people involved in the education and or business community of yoga, yoga teachers, yoga trainers, people like you, people like me could, would do well to consider how to speak to, to more programmatically and systematically educate the people that these populations are going to in the form of physical therapists, nurses, doctors, facilities, other institutions. And that also, um, so that those professionals can advocate for this. It just seems to me that that is the way, one of the main ways we do it. And I see that happening with IAYT, but in terms of them, I want to just lay on this plane on the mental health issues that we see in schools and your uh, focus on that because that's something that really does animate you and it's what you've devoted a lot of time to. And so when we're talking about yoga competing with STEM <laughs> and with already very exhausted populations among the teachers, I mean, you know, I heard a story recently here in Colorado that in a neighboring county, there are teachers living in their cars and going to teach because they can't afford housing, let alone the stresses of the job and all of that. So, you know, what have you seen lately? Do you see any bright lights or bright, you know, bright sort of spots rather in this getting yoga teaching into the schools to help address the mental health crisis that we have in front of us, not just for the students, but also for the educators? There is definitely uh, a crisis going on uh, in our children and adolescents. And there's also a crisis going on with the teachers themselves. This is a very highly stressful profession. And um, the teachers suffer from, you know, mental health challenges of, of chronic stress and mood disturbance and even sleep disturbance. And they don't have the strategies to be able to cope with the stress of their occupation. So they also need the yoga uh, as, as well as the children. 
Um, and you know, we've actually done studies of yoga in public schools for the for the children and adolescents, and we've seen we've seen improvements in, in emotion regulation. But we've also done studies in stressful uh, occupations, and particularly we've done some studies with educators. And we did find that indeed it improved their chronic stress levels, it improved their mood, um, and it 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 prevented them from getting deeper into burnout, which is one of the really big challenges in stressful occupations and and people in the teaching profession don't last long so there's a large transition of people out of that profession because it's not tolerable so the teachers need the yoga as much as as the children do and i think um, what we need to do is be able to embed the yoga into the schools both for the teachers and for the children i mean to the to me these are these are basic strategies to allow us to cope with stress and emotion. And our society doesn't provide that. There, there is no stress and emotion education in our schools. Um, the doctors don't have it. You go to the doctor and you say, gee, doc, I'm really stressed. And the doctor says, yeah, me too. I'm burned out. I'm leaving the profession. The poor kid goes to the teacher in the school and says, you know, I cried all last night. I'm so upset. I'm stressed out. And the teacher says, me too. I'm quitting the job tomorrow. There's no place where that strategy is taught. Uh, and yoga is exactly that skill set. It's the ability to manage stress and emotion. It's a place where it's a practice that you can build resilience and tolerance and, and enhance your performance. Not only that, but you enhance your sense of life, meaning, and purpose. Uh, and that goes a long way to making people much more functional. Uh, and much less prone to um, the, the many disorders that we have now that are that are really lifestyle disorders. So the solution really is to embed this into the schools, uh, embed this into mainstream society, teach it in the workplaces, get it um, so that it's um, described, the studies are described in medical schools so that the doctors have access to these practices and that they can also refer their patients for for these practices. So it's it's really a global issue. And we have uh, a real responsibility as a yoga community, as a yoga world, to educate the public um, about yoga and its potential benefits. You know, I was I was at the Kripalu Center just for the for our symposium on yoga research, and I happened to be uh, standing outside in one of the hallways in one of the lounges. And there was a fellow there who obviously had been attending Kripalu. And so obviously he's not yoga naive. He's come to the Kripalu Yoga Center, probably practicing yoga. And he happened, he said he wandered into the poster sessions. And what he described, he said, I was totally amazed. He said, I saw these studies that were done on yoga, showing all of these benefits in these different patient populations. I had no idea that that was happening. So here's someone in the yoga world, at least partially, has no clue that there's such a thing as yoga research. So, I mean, not only do we have a, a, you know, a responsibility to educate the general public, we, we even need to educate yoga teachers. Totally. You know, and that's one of my roles as, as the director of yoga research for the Yoga Alliance is exactly that is educating yoga teachers that yes yoga research exists there's a lot to learn there's a whole language that we use to describe how yoga works on the mind and on the body and you need to know about this because it will help you teach and it will help you uh, bring your yoga into society's venues um, with that knowledge with that information and, and with that languaging and so we have a real duty to to not only educate um, the general public, but also the rest of the yoga world. And, and we need our yoga organizations to take the leadership in doing that. Totally. So, for example, our symposium on yoga research, one thing that it has suffered from is a lack of public relations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think the media needs to know whenever we have the symposium on yoga research, have our keynotes interviewed on a Good Morning America type of, you know, news show. Uh, and, and, you know, that's where it reaches the public directly so that, you know, that 
keynote presenter can say, yeah, you know, yoga is a real thing. It, it's, uh, you know, it has these positive benefits. Uh, and and it's, it, it's not just a religion. It's not just a form of exercise. It's a real mind-body practice that can change your life. Totally. That is a great way and place to start, Sabir, and I'm on it. <laughs> I'll tell you that I, this education thing, you know, animates me more than almost anything. And I do think it's also as much about the strategic communications and the identifying of the audiences that have impact and influence who can themselves be educated and in turn share these specific ways that yoga transforms. It does it in so many ways, as you and I have discussed many times. And I wonder if you have any any recent studies or readings that you've come across, even you know a trashy novel, anything that you might want to share with the audience um, to check out or to look more into. Well, I think for people who who are really new to yoga or you know wanting to know more, I mean, Harvard Medical School actually approached me. The Harvard Health Publications approached me to be the medical editor of a book called Introduction to Yoga. And, you know, it's online and you can buy it. It's got the Harvard logo, the Harvard name on it. And in that book, um, you know, we describe a lot of the research that's been done and the benefits it has for different conditions. But the other beauty of it is that it's also got a whole section devoted to how to pick a yoga class, how to find a yoga teacher, how to find the right yoga class. And then it's also got a number of simple exercises with with, uh, images and drawings and uh, it's very nicely done. And so it's a very good introduction to yoga. But for anyone who's interested in the research, I mean, uh, you can find articles online that are reviews of this research, some of them more technical than others, but, you know, they come in a variety of forms. But, you know, everything's on the internet these days. So if you Google, you know, what is yoga research, you're going to get a lot of hits. And, and, you can do some reading and there are some review papers that summarize the research that's been done. Some of them are very narrow. They'll focus on all the research that's been done in yoga for low back pain, for example, or they can be more general, just summarizing uh, yoga research in general. There's a website, a government website called PubMed um, that that basically uh, has the citations for all of the research that's done. And so you type in yoga, uh, type in the word review, uh, and, you know, then you can start reading some of these review papers to summarize that summarize uh, what the research is showing and where it's going. And we are seeing a lot of exciting advances in the field of yoga research that's moving us forward very quickly. And, you know, I definitely we will have all these links in the show notes and especially the link to the Yoga Alliance yoga research set of pages, which you and I together, and you continue to organize around specific topics that people interested um, in these topics might find very helpful. And I will say as a, you know, as a research naive person, having come into this relationship with you, one of the ways that I was able to grab an understanding of a lot of the citations is to carefully read the sort of intention of the work and the conclusions. Yeah, so the papers all will have an abstract. abstract and that abstract sorry. is typically a few hundred <laughs> words, and it really yep. describes what's in the paper. And if it's a review paper, it'll say uh, what kind of literature it's reviewed. Mm-hmm. And and with respect to Yoga Alliance, you're absolutely right. You and I did a lot of videos, you know, many, many webinars that are mm-hmm. all devoted to the yoga research that's been done in specific areas. And we also produce these very professionally done seven-minute videos that summarize the research. And then, of course... We've also made a citation page Mm -hmm. on the Yoga Alliance website in which people can go to all the different categories of research. And, you know, I've collated a lot of the the best um, papers to take a look at. So in some sense, that's easier than going to the raw literature on PubMed um, because some of that has been filtered through and there are review papers that are available uh, on those pages. Yeah, and it's it's very much worth amplify, just making that point that you've done a lot of work to curate information for people and it would be great. I think there may be a 
webinar that you've done somewhere recently where you've guided people through how to read research papers. Is that out there something? Yes, actually, the most recent two webinars that we've done at Yoga Alliance are actually targeting at accessing the research and mm-hmm. interpreting the research. So Excellent. Uh, that's already, uh, those are already out in, in two webinars and there's another one coming up. Oh, that's great. Well, I hope they're for public consumption. We'll look for that link. I hope that that's available for anybody who's interested in understanding that because again, the more people we can reach with the how to's and the education, the more I think this information will flow. Well, thank you so much, Sabir, for your time. And uh, hopefully everybody will enjoy the show links and more. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This show was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me, and the music is original music from my former band, Governess. Please share what you liked or wanted to know more about from this podcast. Please take two minutes to review it if you have the chance from wherever you do get your podcasts. Send me an email directly to kim at weekswell.com to start a dialogue about how you practice well and what practicing well looks like in your life. You can follow us on weekswell.com, follow us on weekswell in between Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter, and TikTok. You'll find us there, either weeks.well or weeks underscore well. See you next time. (laughs) 